I just want to invite you this morning to open up to James chapter 2 as we're going to be exploring what James has to say about faith and works. And as we're getting started this morning, I just want to invite you to walk with me carefully, deliberately, and intentionally as we seek to really unpack some of the truths that James is going to lay out before us. Because some of the things that James has to say today, they are very misunderstood, and there's a lot of debate and discussion that exists over them. But I really believe if we carefully examine them, if we start to walk through them and really seek to understand them, they will radically challenge us, and they'll dramatically change our life for the better in the process. You know, up to this point in chapters 1 and 2, James has been talking about this idea of an inward emptiness, a faith without works, if you will. And he's been dealing with this issue of discrimination and favoritism and partiality that existed in the church. And he's saying that's not what real true religion is about. Real religion isn't about us. It's about helping other people. That real faith should produce a visible reaction in the life of a believer. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go through our passage today, because that's what James is really going to be talking about. So if you join with me, we're going to start off in James chapter 2 with verse 14. It says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? He just starts right off the bat with a question. He left off right in verse 14 where he was in verse 13. He's been talking about this idea of mercy and how mercy, God's mercy, can triumph over any judgment that exists in our life. And if you have that mercy living inside of you, that same mercy should also be pouring out from you. And that covers over to the poor, to the homeless, to the widows, to the orphans, to those who are discriminated or looked down upon or cast to the side. It covers over all of them. And James is saying we really need to get involved because that's what faith is all about. And so he asks this question. It says, suppose there's a man who goes around claiming that he has faith, but he's not doing anything about it. There's no proof of it in his life. Is his faith real? Does his faith save? Does it really do anything? (laughs) And he's using this image of, think about a man who maybe lived a life of sin, but somewhere along the way encountered God, met God, had this life-changing moment that existed in his life, and now he's just kind of going through his life saying to everybody, hey, I'm a believer, I've got faith, but he's still living in his life of sin. There's been no change at all in his life. James says, does his faith do anything? Is it just talk? Is there any deeds? Is there any work? I mean, how do we know that this faith is real in this person's life? How do we know it's active? It's like me saying, I'm a runner. I love running. There's there's something about running that just frees my mind. I can just run and I feel good. And, you know, I've studied running strides and breathing techniques. I got the shoes, the shorts, the shirt, but I haven't run in like seven years. (laughs) Does that make me a runner today? No. It means I used to be a runner, but I'm not actively engaged in running. And so I'm not a runner. And James is saying the same thing here about faith. If you're not actively engaged, if there's no works behind it, how can you really say that you have faith? 
Now, it's not that this man's faith was insincere. No, he probably really believed that he had faith. But James says, if there's nothing to back it up, how do we know? How do we know that it's real? And so the answer to his question is obvious. This man's faith is useless. It doesn't do anything for him unless it produces something. And that's the first truth that James wants us to wrestle with this morning. And it's simply this. That when we have faith in our hearts, it should be evident in the fruit of our lives. Faith in our hearts should be evident in the fruit of our lives. When we talk about fruit, we're talking about these acts of mercy or these good deeds that we do to other people and to people who are hurting and in need. And this is a topic James is going to focus on for the rest of chapter 2. He says it right off here in the next verse. He says, faith without action is dead. And then he says, faith without deeds is useless. And then he'll end by saying, faith without deeds is dead. James is pretty passionate about this. So it makes us stop and ask the question, what does it mean to have a dead faith? Obviously, James knows that it's important, and he's warning us not to have a dead faith. So what is a dead faith so I can watch out for it? Simply, folks, it's a faith that doesn't save. That's why James, he asked just straight up, he says, does this kind of faith save? Once again, the answer is obvious. No, it doesn't. Because that kind of faith could never make us right before God because there's nothing behind it. It's not producing anything. And it's not that James is comparing this immature faith with a mature faith or this huge, well-built and crafted faith with this insignificant faith. He's simply comparing faith with having no faith at all. And he says, it is possible that there are believers out there who are saying that they have faith, even a faith that saves, but yet they really have no faith at all because there's no works behind it. And maybe you're sitting here in this room and I can see some of the eyebrows starting to twitch and the gears spinning in your head. Wait a second, Matt. Doesn't scripture tell us that we are saved by faith apart from works? How does that work? What does that mean? And you know what? You're right. The Bible makes it very clear that we are saved by only one thing, and that's the grace, the mercy, and the love of our Lord and Savior. That's how we are saved. And James, he even attested that. He's saying, look, we are not saved by the things that we do, but what Jesus has already done for us when he went to the cross and he died so we could live. But what James is saying here is while all of that is true, you know what else is true? Your faith should produce some kind of evidence. Your faith should produce some kind of work in your life if you're really going to have this true faith that exists. And that's what James is getting at as he starts talking about all of these things going on. He's saying you have to have an outward, visible appearance of this faith in your life. And so how do we have that kind of faith? What does this faith look like? Well, as James is saying, it's a faith that produces fruit. Even Jesus himself said it in Matthew chapter 7. He says, by their fruits, you will recognize them. If I look at a tree and I see apples, do I know what kind of tree it is? It's an apple tree. If I see pears, do I know what kind of tree it is? It's a pear tree. If I don't see any fruit growing on this tree, how do I know what kind of tree it is? How do I even know if that tree is really alive? Maybe on the outside, 
It looks good, but on the inside, it's dying. It's fading away. There's no reality inside of it. And James is warning us, don't be like that tree who just says that they're one thing, but really it's not there. It doesn't exist. And that's why he's calling us that having real faith in your hearts should be evident in the fruit of your life by doing these good deeds to other people, to the people who are in need in this world around us. And over the last two weeks, we've been talking about ways in which we can actually do this, that we can do these good acts of mercy and good deeds to other people. We've talked about Juarez. We've talked about the Philippines. We've talked about Long Beach. And maybe there's some of you who've been sitting out there thinking, that's not me. That's uncomfortable for me. I don't really engage in those kind of big acts of faith. I don't have resources. I don't have the times. I just, that's frightening for me. So where does this leave me? How can I still do something like this? Maybe my own terms. I think God says that's okay. He just wants you to start right where you're at with what you have. Maybe it starts with prayer. Praying in your own way, on your own time, whatever day works best for you, you just commit to pray for someone other than yourself. Pray for a neighbor, a coworker, a relative, a family member. So I'll tell you what happens. When you start to pray for these people, God starts to reveal to you what that next step is, what your next act of mercy is, what that next good deed is. Maybe it's vocalizing that prayer to them, speaking a word of encouragement into someone's life. Maybe it's buying someone's food in the fast food line for the car behind you. Maybe it's buying someone's groceries. Maybe it's going through your house and finding all that stuff that you've bought that you don't ever use and giving it to people who actually need it. Maybe it's writing words of encouragement to people. Maybe it's leaving a little thank you gift bag for someone or I'm thinking of you, well wishes kind of sentiment. And even though you may be sitting here thinking, those things are small. They don't mean anything. I can tell you firsthand, they make a difference in life. Last month, Tiffany and I, we had to put down our cat, Bentley. And Tiffany had this cat before we got married, but this cat was her emotional support cat. It got her through her depression. It got her through her thoughts of suicide. It got her through so many hard moments in her life. But unfortunately, he got cancer. And we took the cat and we had multiple surgeries. I mean, it was the most loving, friendly cat, and we wanted to do whatever we could to be with Bentley longer. But it got to a point where the cancer was growing back faster than we could remove it through surgeries. And Tiffany and I had a hard conversation. We realized we were just being greedy because we wanted to spend more time with him, not realizing the emotional toll it was putting on the cat. And so we made that hard decision to have him put down. And so last month we drove to the vet and we had him put down and nothing prepares you for that kind of devastation. For that kind of loss. And don't get me wrong, I know that we were one of the lucky ones because we got a chance to say goodbye. We got a chance to be there in those last moments, and I know some people don't get those, whether it be an animal or it be a loved one, but either way, it's a very difficult situation. It's heartbreaking. And as we were driving home, we're both crying, we're, we're grieving, we're mourning, we're trying to just put how we're feeling into words, but nothing was coming out. We were just raw. 
And we get home and we see there's this little bag sitting on our doorstep. And we walk up and we open the bag once we get inside and it was a card with a word of encouragement, a few games and a little stuffed Groku for my son Oliver. Somebody went out of their way, and we know who it was, but went out of their way to deliver this gift to help us in our time of need. And even though it may have seemed like something so insignificant, something so small for our family, it meant the world because it made that moment bearable. It made us get through that moment and how we were feeling. And then later that night when we started to open the things and play with them, it made that next moment bearable and the next moment bearable. And it got us through the tragedy of that day. You see, this is what James is calling us into. He's saying that regardless of if you think it's big or small, you just need to do. You need to be the hands and feet of Jesus to see the needs of a hurting world around you and respond. Act upon it. Because you know what the opposite of that is? Get ready for this. James is about to hit us right between the eyes. This is a harsh reality that he shares with us next. Look at this. People who claim to be Christian but fail to help fellow believers are not saved. I know that's harsh. <laughs> it's like, where's the love in this? But this is what James is telling us, and it's evidence in this next set of verses in 15 to 16. Look at this. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. He's saying they're at your doorstep. There's a brother or sister who comes to you in their time of need. They don't have enough clothing to keep warm. They haven't enough food to feed them throughout that day. They're miserable. They're cold. They're hungry. They're starving. They're desperate. They come to your doorstep asking for help. And James says, we just look at them and what do we say? Go, I wish you well. You know, that was a very common phrase to be said in the early church because the people would get together and they would have these shared meals with one another where they would be lounging, they would eat to their fill, they would be warm in the company and after the night was over, as people were leaving, this was the blessing you would speak over them. Almost like saying, now that you're warm, now that you're fed, go, be well. It's like when we say drive safe now. You're wishing blessings upon that person. But if you look at the actual words that James uses here in the Hebrew of how we as believers respond to these people in need, do you know what the words he uses are? He says, when you see them on your doorstep, our response is find warmth and feed yourself. How crass is that? What good do those words do to that believer or sister, that brother or sister in need? What good does it do us? That's what he's getting at. In the same way that those words don't help that person in their time of need, so our faith, it is useless. It doesn't do anything for us unless there's some kind of action behind it. Now, let me be very clear. There's two subpoints that I need to mention before we go further. The first one is this. Acts of mercy are not a means to our salvation. Like we said, there's only one way that we are saved, and it is by the love, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's it. But acts of mercy are a necessary evidence of our salvation. 
doing these deeds, doing these works, it's a necessary evidence of our salvation. It should be the natural outpour of our life. Because there is no way that you can have God living inside of you and see a hurting world all around you and not feel compelled to get involved. Not feel compelled to act, to step in, to get your hands dirty, to do whatever it takes to help. Because that's what God leads us to. Now, I love what Charles Spurgeon once said. Look at this. He says, our giving to the poor is not motivated by guilt as if we have to do these things in order to get something. No, we are not motivated by guilt as followers of Christ. We're motivated by the gospel, the power of Christ, faith in Christ as he lives in us, the overflow of our hearts where we're compelled to give to the poor, where it's not a duty as much as it is a delight where we enjoy giving to the poor because in the same way that we would enjoy giving to Christ himself. Folks, that's what it comes down to. See, one of the fruits of our faith is acts of mercy. It's doing these deeds. It's helping our brothers and sisters who are in times of need around us, stepping into this real, true faith that James and even Jesus himself is calling us to step into. See, James is saying that it involves work because you know what the other truth is? A deedless faith is a useless faith. He's saying a deedless faith is a useless faith. And once again, he brings in this imaginary person who says, you know what, I've got my faith and you've got your works. Almost like they're trying to separate the two of them. Some people have faith, some people have works. Some people do deeds, some people just believe. But James is saying no. You can't separate the two. In fact, I will show you my faith by what I do. And then I imagine him almost chuckling when he says this in verse 20. Look at this. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Faith without deeds is useless. It doesn't do any good for the brother or sister in their time of need, and it doesn't do any good for you. It doesn't lead to your salvation. It doesn't lead to you being made right before God. Your faith has to be something more. It's got to produce something. There has to be a visible reaction in the life of a believer. It's more than just this intellectual kind of thing. And James, he's going to say something now to wake us up, to get our attention. And he's very blunt. He very speaks the truth here, but he says it's not enough to have an intellectual kind of faith. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's not enough just to read the scriptures, to learn about God, to study God, to study what Jesus did, and then go around saying, man, I've got this belief that's founded in the Bible because I see how God's moving. I see who God is, and I can tell you about God. That's an intellectual faith, and it sounds appealing. This is the same kind of faith the Pharisees had. They knew the law backwards and forwards. They knew the writings. They were living them out in their lives. But they failed to see the acts of mercy and the compassion that Jesus was doing around them. And when they did see them, they questioned him. What do you think you're doing? This isn't what the law says. This isn't what the writings are telling us to do. That's not what faith, that's not what religion looks like. And Jesus says, you're wrong. This is exactly what faith looks like. 
Because faith is more than just this intellectual thing. It's not just about knowing because the truth is even the demons believe in God. Even the demons have an intellectual knowledge. I mean, look at this in verse 19. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. See, every good Jewish man and woman knew of something called the great Shema. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6 where it says, Hear, O Israel, that the Lord, your God, that the Lord is one. Everybody knew who God was. Even the demons know who God is. The demons know the reality of heaven and hell. Demons know that God is the eternal judge. The demons know God is the only one who can save. The demons believe in God, and yet they are not saved. This is what James is warning us about. Don't just have that kind of intellectual faith that the demons have. It's not enough just to know God. You've got to be the hands and feet of God. You've got to be his presence in a hurting world. You've got to act upon your faith. And then he takes it one step further. He says, no, it's not just an intellectual faith, but it's also not an emotional faith. Because what's the second part of that verse say? Even the demons believe in what? They shudder. They withdraw. They cower back. They have an emotional response to the power of God. And I've got to ask, how many of us have made a decision on our eternal security based off of how we're feeling in the moment? Based off of how we're feeling about God? What we think we know about God? How we experience God in the midst of hard times in our life? See, James is saying that real faith involves action. It's not just knowing. It's not just emotional. It involves obedience, doing what God says. If you know faith, you show faith. So what does that look like? I mean, James has been hitting us pretty hard <laughs> talking about this deedless, useless, intellectual, emotional kind of faith. So what's the good side of this? Well, James gives us a little bit of a breather here. In this next part, look at this in verses 20 through 24. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. See, James has told us about this dead, intellectual, emotional, this deedless, useless kind of faith. But now he's switching to tell us about the power that exists in a living faith. A living, breathing, active, working, obedient, trusting kind of faith that we're being called to step into. And if you take a look at how James has really described faith in the last 51 verses, you can kind of see him leading up to this. I mean, just take a look at this. This is how he describes faith. Faith in our glorious Jesus Christ. Faith that perseveres under trial. Faith that obeys the word of God. Faith that is not friends with the world. Faith that leads to righteousness. Do you know what all those words are? They're action words. They're working words. Obey, persevere. And that's why he goes on to say his faith and his actions were what? They were working 
together. In essence, James is saying a living faith should have some element of action or work to it. And he believes this so much, he mentions it over 15 different times in his writings because he wants us to know how important these works are, especially because there are two different types of works that we do in our lives. Works that are fueled by the flesh and works that come from the fruit of our faith. Let's talk about works that are fueled by our flesh. These are the things that Paul writes about when he says about circumcision and abstaining from certain types of food and adherence to the law and all of these things that people would do as if they were trying to earn some kind of favor or some kind of status before God. Like they were trying to earn their salvation out of a place of pride. James is saying, don't do that. Stay away from that with every part of your body because that is useless. That is deedless. That doesn't do anything for you. Don't act out of the flesh because it's only going to lead you down a really bad trail. Instead, do works that are fueled by fruits of our faith. Fruits that are molded and are shown to us through a loving, a merciful, and a compassionate God. What do those look like? It's loving on people who the world doesn't love. Helping the needy, giving to the poor, coming alongside of people, encouraging them, lifting them up, reaching out to our hurting world. Really stepping out to get our hands dirty and get involved in a world that's broken and in need of help. And in everything we do, coming back to glorifying who God is. That's what a living faith is. And James helps us understand this by taking a look at Abraham. He says, Abraham had a living faith. A living faith that was influenced by works. I mean, why on earth would Abraham take his son and try to go sacrifice him on a mountaintop? It's because he had an obedient faith. He had a trusting faith. He had a living faith. He had a working faith. And you know what the result of it was, folks? Look at this in verse 22. His faith was made complete by what he did. His faith was made complete by what he did. You see, faith creates works. Works complete faith. Let me say that again. Faith creates works, but works, they complete your faith. You know what the word complete means? To bring to maturity or to the indesired goal. What is the indesired goal of our faith? That we would glorify God in all that we do. That's it. That's the truth. And that's what we're being called to step into, to have that kind of a faith, to be a faith that's living, that's working, that's shown in our actions. But now as things are good and we're feeling really energized, James just goes and wrecks it all. <laughs> Look at what he says in the next verse in 2.24. He says, you see, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Doesn't that sound a little weird? Kind of contrary to everything that we have been talking about up to this point. I mean, how can James actually say this? Well, we have to keep in mind, he's been talking about two different kinds of faith. A dead, useless, deedless, intellectual, emotional kind of faith, and a living, active, breathing, working kind of faith. 
And when he says this phrase, when he says a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone, can you guess which faith he's talking about? The dead faith. The useless faith. That faith will never save. So it leads us to a very important question. The question of why you and I are here this morning. What is it then that saves us? What is it that makes us right before God? Is it faith? Is it works? Because I read what Paul says and it seems like one thing. I read what James says, it seems like another thing. I hear what Jesus says and it seems like it's somewhere in the middle. What does that look like? How are we really made right before God? Well, I think instead of looking at all three of these people as individual kind of competing theories, what if we put them all together? What would we learn if we merged all three of them together to see how we are made right before God? Put them together, it's so cool. Look at this. This is what you would get if you put all three of their sayings, the, the summaries of their message together. It says, you are justified, meaning you are saved. You are made right by having a wholehearted trust in Jesus which is not earned by the works that we do or a cold intellectual belief we have of who Jesus is, but in radical obedience to Jesus that leads us to doing what he says. That's it, folks. <laughs> That's how we're made right before God, having this kind of radical obedience that leads us to doing what he says. And maybe you're sitting there right now thinking, well, that's great, but that sounds like an Abraham kind of figure. I'm, I'm not an Abraham. There's no way that I could have that kind of prestige or power or, or be an Abraham. Well, I think that's exactly why James now inserts Rahab into the story. He says, this kind of saving grace, this kind of mercy that triumphs over judgment, this kind of living faith is even available to the Rahabs of us. Look at this in verse 25 to 26. It says, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I love reading this passage because you couldn't get two more different people. Abraham's a man, Rahab's a woman. Kind of obvious. Abraham was a father of nations. Rahab was a prostitute. Abraham was a holy man. Rahab was a common citizen. Abraham was from a high social order. Rahab was from a very low social order. When you look at these two put together and see how God is inviting them in, you got to ask, what on earth is God doing here? <laughs> I mean, if you even take it a step further, do you know who Rahab's mother-in-law was? Ruth. You know what happens when you look at the genealogy of Jesus? What two names appear? Ruth and Rahab. I mean, you look at that and be like, oh my goodness, like how? Why? Like, this doesn't make sense to me. But I think the point is very simple. Rahab was the recipient of a scandalous grace. God was willing to look past her rampful sinfulness and still invite her to be a part of the family of God. And we can understand that because guess what? You and I, we are recipients of a scandalous grace. The only reason why I'm here this morning, 
The only reason why you're here this morning is because God looked past our rampant sinfulness, our failures, our faults, our shortcomings, our mistakes, our screw-ups, our disasters in life, and invited us to be part of something better, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, to gain freedom, to gain salvation, to gain an eternal life with him. I mean, how cool is that? That's so powerful when we understand that. But just knowing that's not enough. We need to act upon that. That's why Rahab, when she really understood this, do you know what she did? She risked it all for the glory of God. If the king knew that she was harboring these spies, not only would she have been killed, but her whole family would have been killed. She would have forever been branded as a traitor guilty of treason. But it didn't stop her. She didn't delay. She didn't hesitate. She was obedient because she trusted God. She had a working, living faith that was all about bringing glory to God in every single thing that she did. Folks, I have to ask, where are the men and women of faith like this today? Where are the Abrahams? Where are the Rahabs? Where are the people who realize because of this scandalous grace that has set us free and made us right before God are willing to risk it all to go against what culture is trying to tell us about who to help and who to stay away from, but to really be vested in this world, in the kingdom of God, and really start being the hands and feet of Jesus to a broken and a hurting world. Where are these believers? Where are these people of faith? You see, we are a story of a redemptive history. Thousands of years after Abraham, thousands of years after Rahab, you and I, we are being handed the same baton to keep running this race, to keep pressing forward, to keep helping those who are in hurting and those who are in need, to keep our faith alive, to be a living, active, working kind of faith, not just some dead faith. See, this is exactly what James is getting to. And he gives us this final reminder as he closes about faith that we are sinners. We are prone to sin. We are children of destruction. We were dead before he entered into our life. And he uses that idea to help us understand faith. Look at how he closes in verse 26. As for the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You know what element makes a corpse a corpse? The absence of a living spirit. You know what element makes faith faith? The presence of acts of mercy. The presence of works, good deeds that we do in our life. And if we find ourselves in a place this morning where our faith is maybe dead, it's dying, it's useless, how do we make it alive again? How do we do that? Do we just go out and start doing these works? No, it doesn't work that way. That would be like digging up a corpse and putting it in a supermarket and putting an apron on it, hoping that if it works, it'll come back to life. It doesn't work. There's only one person who can make us alive, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only person who can restore us, who can set us free, who can make us right before God, who can give us that salvation. And once we understand that, once we have that mercy, that forgiveness, and that freedom that Christ has given to us, man, 
we shouldn't be able to contain it inside of ourselves. It should pour out of every single thing that we do. That's why our faith has to have some kind of visible reaction. And so James is challenging us. He's asking us this morning, where is your faith? Has it been dormant? Is it a deedless, useless faith? Or are you really living a living, breathing, active, working faith? Because if you're not, it's time to start. It's time to put deeds behind your faith and grab a hold of that redemptive mercy and scandalous grace that Jesus has made available to us. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, God, we are so moved by you. God, I pray that we would hear your call in Scripture this morning, that we would hear your challenge, Father, that we would take these truths that James is laying out before us and we would put them in our hearts, Father. That we wouldn't just walk away from this place thinking, yeah, it was another sermon or whatever it may be, but we would be radically challenged to step into that kind of faith, to be your light in this hurting in this broken world. Father, we have been asleep in our faith for far too long, and it is time for us to wake up. Father, you're saying, wake up from our sleep. It's time for us to stand up, to get involved, Father, not just to dream about what the potential, what could happen, but actually do these things, Father. To be doers, not just dreamers, that we would stand up, that we would lift our hands up as believers. Father, we would pick up our cross and we would follow after you, crying with everything in our hearts, not our will, but your will be done. Father, because faith isn't about us. It's about bringing glory to you. So Father, I pray you challenge us this morning. Father, you really search our hearts. Wake us up to see where our faith is. Challenge us to take that next step, whether it's prayer or words of encouragement or helping provide for a need for someone, whatever it may be, Father, I pray that we would act. Father, there's so many people who are hurting in this world. There's so many people who are hurting in our communities. There are so many people who are hurting in this room, Father. Open our eyes to see the need. Open our eyes to see the pain. Open our eyes to see how we can help. That we can put these works, that we can put these deeds behind the things that we do. And that we would glorify you through it all. That it wouldn't be from a place of pride or from our flesh, but it would just simply be about glorifying you and helping people receive that same mercy, grace, forgiveness that we have received. The same healing we have received from you. Father, wake us up to see the pain. Challenge us to be your hands and feet. Thank you. Thank you for everything, Father. 
pray this.